do something for me this morning? Don't be afraid. It's not hard. Imagine for a moment that you are a first-century Roman citizen, okay? Just, just imagine walking around in your toga, okay? You can do it. Imagine you're a first-century Roman citizen living in what today we would call modern-day Turkey in that area, but in a mostly, vast mostly, very mostly non-Christian society, okay? You've recently been offered teaching about a Jewish Messiah known as Jesus of Nazareth, the man who was crucified yet resurrected because apparently he was the living God come down in human form. And filled by something that these teachers could only describe as Jesus' Holy Spirit, you've actually come to believe that this man must truly be the Savior of the world. It's been purely experiential. The Spirit within you has provided these truths that make you utterly convinced that this man must be the Savior of the world. But ever since you came to believe, you haven't been seeing proof that this Jesus is actually doing anything. The Roman Empire is stronger than ever. You're part of a small group of motley Christians who meet daily in each other's homes, but the vast majority of people around you in the streets and the markets are worshipers of the gods of Rome, not to mention Caesar himself. In fact, Caesar is so popular right now that he's actually being called the savior of the world. And you're constantly feeling the pressure to question whether or not what you believe is actually true, is actually the right thing to believe. Your little group of Christian brothers and sisters are, are poor and barely surviving, whereas all these empire worshipers are busy building gorgeous buildings for Caesar and expensive temples. That's a religion that seems to be working. Everyone's eager and excited to show off how devoted they are to Caesar, how much he's doing, how great he is. And you can't help but ask yourself, am I wasting my time following a crucified Jew that I can't even see, rather than somebody who I can see, who is obviously doing things that everybody loves and adores? Am I crazy? Your mind wants to believe that, that that's not true, that Jesus actually is the beginning and end of all things. But your mind is struggling to reason with it because it doesn't make sense with what you see going on around you. So, one day, you take a day away on a little island off the coast to clear your mind and spend some time in prayer. And while you're praying and reflecting on these things, suddenly your mind does something that it's never done before. It imagines, it sees, Jesus. The face of Jesus. You are suddenly face to face with the truth that perhaps heaven and earth actually aren't so far apart. Because what Jesus shows you is that events in heaven are actually moving alongside of and among events on earth, like two different puzzles that the pieces are suddenly now merging together. The physical and the spiritual are intertwined, like in the person of Jesus. In other words, there's always more going on than what we can see. This is what John, the writer of Revelation, experienced. Kind of like an audience member at a theater, he saw the curtain open and suddenly there was this whole show 
being played out in front of him that he didn't even realize was going on. There's always more going on is the lesson that we immediately learn in the book of Revelation. There's always something happening that the eye cannot see. As one writer put it, things are not as they seem. There is more to reality than what meets the unaided senses. There's more to what we call life than we can know with our intellect and emotions. And that's only the case because of who Jesus of Nazareth is. So we're going to explore this a little bit more by looking, of course, at the book of Revelation. So if you've got a Bible with you, you can turn to Revelation chapter 1. And just by way of reminder, we're in a series right now on the names of Jesus. So we're looking at the ways, the different ways that Scripture speaks about Jesus, what Jesus himself says about himself, but then also what other authors write about him. And the passage for this morning involves a bunch of, a few different titles or names for Jesus, but we're going to be focusing particularly or, or gearing ourselves particularly towards one. Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. It's a rather packed passage, as you would have noticed, but we're going we're gonna to go through it a bit slowly, kind of taking one bit at a time. Um, so it's going to feel a little bit all over the place, but, but it's all going to be um, building, they're like building blocks, moving us in a certain direction where we land on one of these names. I'm sure you can guess which one. <laughs> uh, one of these names of Jesus that we'll focus on and finish with. Okay, so first, in verse 1, this is the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what soon must take place. Okay, so this is from Jesus, but it's a revelation that God gave to him to then show his servants. So we see Jesus here operating as a kind of mediator, right? A, a priestly role that he has between heaven and earth. He's the bridge from God to the people, the, the middle man, the mouthpiece. God's got something to say, in other words, and it's going to come through Jesus. So before anything is revealed about what needs to take place, what first needs to be revealed is who this Jesus is. And it's easy to skip over this passage, right? Because it's a lot of sort of, you know, Christianese language. We want to skip over to the more exciting bits that talk about dragons and such. But that's only because 
we have this tendency to always want to know what's going to happen. What's going to happen next? How is it going to get resolved? How is Jesus going to tackle or, or manage this problem? Where are we going to go? What are we going to do? But first, but first, Revelation reminds us, first we always need to be reminded of who Jesus is. Things need to be revealed, yes, but not before we remember who Christ is. And it takes a special kind of, of heavenly patience to do this, to wait. As the disciples were told at the beginning of Acts, wait, just wait for heavenly wisdom, for spirit wisdom, before we actually go into acting and doing more. We also read in verse 2 that Jesus is the Word of God. That's what John saw, the living Word, as Eric spoke about last week, a Word that is active and doing. So again, it's, it's reaffirmed that before we do anything, Jesus' Spirit is already doing something. We're already enlivened by someone else before we ever do anything ourselves. This is John's experience, right? He's, be, he's being revealed these things. Things are going on that he has nothing to do with. And this is what he's being told. You need to know that things are going on that you have nothing to do with that is impacting the circumstances around you. This whole passage actually is an establishment, again, of who Jesus is. And it continues into verse 4. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of this earth. So not only is Jesus here being connected to he who is and who was and who is to come, i.e. God the Father, but he is also the, the only faithful human to have ever given perfect witness to who God is. He's the only one to have ever done that, who rose from the dead and inaugurated a new reality for those of us who would follow him. And he rules over all kings, even Caesar. Even Caesar. But why then, John would be asking, why? Why, if, if he is this person, why are Christians, my brothers and sisters who love and follow this Jesus, suffering and being persecuted and dying? See, because this was an era in the church's existence that experienced brutal persecution from Rome. Just brutal. By the end of the late century, Christianity, see, had, had started to be seen as something different because for the earlier years after Jesus' death and resurrection, Christianity was seen by the empire as sort of a Jewish sect. It was, it was connected to Judaism because it was mostly Jewish converts who were a part of these churches. But now that the church was beginning to attract more and more Gentiles, by the end of the first century, what you see happening is, is Rome is, is cluing in that this isn't actually a Jewish sect. This is something totally different. And because it's something totally different, it's dangerous to the unity of the empire. Judaism was one of the accepted religions. This, mm -mm, not so much. So the rate then of arrests and imprisonments and executions went up. And the question naturally arose. If what we've been told about who Jesus is really is who he is, why are we still suffering the way we are? But hold on, says John. We're not done yet. Verses 5 through 6. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Okay, so we're talking here about 
not somebody who's just a ruler of rulers like Caesar was over his, you know, vassal states and city kings. This is a king who has loved us, who has made us into a new kingdom, a new and totally different kind of kingdom, and has covered us in the innocence of his sacrifice so that we can be priests within that kingdom. I mean, what other king has ever done this? This is something nobody would have ever heard of before. Caesar doesn't sacrifice for other people. That doesn't make sense. And then there's this interesting verse, verse 7, where there's actually an allusion back to Daniel 7, a passage that speaks about someone like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, anytime we hear anything about clouds in Scripture, our minds should immediately go to who? To God, right? To to Yahweh, the God of Israel, who, who seems to specialize in cloud control, right? Anytime you see a cloud doing something in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant Scriptures, We're talking about Yahweh doing something. He's moving. When clouds come in, the Lord's hand is at work. But it's clear here that we aren't actually speaking about God the Father anymore, but Jesus. Because when he comes on the clouds, everyone will see him, even those who pierced him. See, everything now that was spoken about God is attributed to Christ. But if, if these are supposed to be words of comfort, right? Because this is the situation that John is in. He's the, the, his fellow Christians are being persecuted and they're suffering. He's needing words of comfort and assurance. Why then, why then are people going to mourn when they see him? As it says in verse 7, celebrate his coming, yeah, be a little terrified, likely. That would make sense, but mourn. Why will everyone mourn because of him? Shouldn't we be looking for a solution to our mourning? Why would Jesus bring mourning? Why would his coming bring mourning? Well, this actually isn't meant to surprise us. If we look at the words in Zechariah 12, God says that after he pours out grace and supplication, and we're talking here through Jesus, after he pours out grace and supplication, the people will look on him, the one they have pierced, see there's another clue, and mourn for him as one who grieves for an only child. They will look on the one that they've pierced, and they will mourn. Why? And I know this is sounding a little bit off-kilter, but it's all going to come funnel in, I promise. Well, because as some have said, we have to experience a level of ache before we can taste the goodness. The gospel is actually bad news, before it is good news. Good news is only good news because something bad needs to be dealt with. When Christ's presence is ushered into our lives, either in our present circumstances or when we think of his future coming, what almost always immediately happens is that we experience both joy and grief. Because we actually realize The presence of Jesus makes us realize how in the wrong we've actually been. What overwhelms us when we truly encounter Jesus is a kind of great humility. Because it takes a lot of humility to come face to face with the reality that we've made mistakes. That we actually contributed to and participated in the nails that formed the holes in his hands. 
We all share, right, in the sins that nailed Jesus to the cross. We all know this. We talk about it all the time. It's a part of our theology. But do we really think about it and allow it to cause a sort of great humility when we look at the face of Jesus and we realize that we contributed to it? We can know this on a head level, but it's only in his presence that creates, we, we have something of a visceral ache sort of created within us in our hearts, in a, in a heart knowledge kind of way that says, oh, I did this. It's like a, a sucker punch to our souls. I did this. And it isn't shame, it isn't guilt, it's grief. A kind of humble grief that says, I was wrong. That I really didn't know what was going on. That I am more selfish and more stubborn than I actually realize. That things are always beyond what I can see. I think that's the kind of mourning that we're talking about here. The impact of seeing Jesus face to face and suddenly being caught up in that reality that I contributed to his pain. The joy of seeing him combined with the grief that the holes in his hand are partly my fault. There's a, Corey, uh, there's a story of Corrie ten Boom, some of you are familiar with the name, a woman who's, uh, who lived in Holland whose family hid Jews, Jewish families, during the Nazi occupation in Holland. And her sister, she and her sister ended up being imprisoned uh, in a concentration camp for many years. Well, she ended up surviving, and years later she was speaking at an event. She happened to be speaking about forgiveness. And while she was speaking, she noticed that there was some, a man standing at the back who she immediately recognized as one of the guards who had been at her concentration camp. Now, he wasn't the only guard in the camp. We, couldn't, we could even say that maybe it wasn't his fault that he was there. He was maybe brainwashed into it by Hitler's ideals and agenda. Perhaps he was forced into it. But the words that Corey spoke... And she, of course, had, had a tension in her heart as she was speaking and seeing him standing at the back. The words that she spoke brought him to tears. Just simply seeing her brought the guilt out of him, the grief, I should say, out of him, and led him to approach Corey afterwards and ask her for forgiveness. Seeing Corey suddenly brought out the deep grief within him. And he knew that he'd made some grave errors in his life. Feelings of grief that he never actually felt until he saw her in the flesh. See, as long as, as, long as someone remains distant or depersonalized, and we do this with Jesus, as long as he remains distant or depersonalized or anyone that we may have caused hurt to, as long as we keep them at a distance, we don't need to deal with the grief of our mistakes. It's only when we're face to face with them that suddenly the ache within us that we easily hide away resurfaces and we realize that we actually aren't human robots as much as we like to think we are. We are deeply emotional beings capable of great joy and deep grief, capable of being deeply hurt and of inflicting deep hurt. Jesus knows. 
Jesus knows. And his presence in our lives, the presence of the one who is and who was and who is to come, his presence keeps us from becoming hollowed out individuals who don't allow ourselves to grieve. And now I'm talking about any kind of grief, whether it's the grief of our own brokenness or the grief of the brokenness that we see around us and that we're experiencing. His presence in our lives keeps us from pushing down that grief, which is what our human inclination says we need to do to survive. His presence brings it out of us. It pulls out of us all of the grief that is stored up within and nurtures us to lay it down before him so that we can truly engage ourselves with not only the mistakes of our past, but also the fears of our future. Because Jesus is saying, ultimately here, that he holds all things. That's ultimately where this passage is going. I am the whole continuum, he says. From start to finish, from birth to final breath, I am. Which is why we have that final verse now in verse 8. When he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, this language wasn't actually revolutionary language. It was actually language that had been common, commonly used in Jewish communities for years. As a Jew, you would have immediately known what this meant for someone to be called the beginning and the end because they'd been using this terminology for centuries. Back in the earlier days, some of the earlier Jewish writings, Abraham was spoken of being somebody who followed the law from Aleph to Tav, which is the first and the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It was said of God that he had blessed Israel from Aleph to Tav, like, you know, from Alpha to Omega, from beginning to end, he had blessed them, meaning that there was nothing lacking. He had, he had blessed them completely, in completeness. God himself says in Isaiah 44, I am the first and the last. Apart from me, there is no God. And now here in Revelation, in the whole book actually, we see this show up numerous times. In chapter one, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. In chapter two, these are the words of him who is the first and the last. In 21, it is done, I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And at the end of the book, Jesus says, I am the alpha and the omega the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Alpha and omega, literally the first and the last letter of the alphabet. We would say A to Z or Z if you're, no, A to Z. We would say A to Z, A to Z if you're American. Ignore that. First and last, beginning and end, east to west. He covers the whole thing. Everything, in other words, is held by him from start to finish. The whole spectrum from beginning to end and everything in between is held and opened up in Jesus. He's the whole package from cradle to grave. If we think about our own lives then. I mean, just think for a moment of every emotion you've ever felt in your entire life. I know, it's overwhelming. Just, just that's the point. Think about it. Think of every emotion you've ever felt as a child, in your teenage years, in your young adult years, and beyond, every emotion you've ever felt. Feel how deeply human you are and how deeply raw 
and broken you are. And then know that Jesus holds every single one of those moments and has not forgotten any of them. Every single one. From the moment you first let out a cry out of your mother's womb to the moment that you will shed a tear at your final breath, he holds it all. Why do we think about this? Why do we talk about this? Well, because there's no point speaking about Jesus as the Alpha and the Omega unless we're actually willing to contemplate all of life in its entirety and to see it and believe it as a saga of mysterious, wondrous years that are held in the eternal hands of our King. There's no point talking about Jesus as the Alpha and the Omega if we don't actually do that. And it's so clear in our society that we are encouraged not to do this. Not to talk about beginning and especially not end. We actually avoid that at all costs, right? We don't want to talk about it. We avoid the terror and the pain of it. We actually have a day of the year that's focused on celebrating it, which is getting weirder and weirder. We, we find ways to cope it with it by, by making it something that we can control, which we're seeing more and more as well. But for us as followers of Christ, the end is only a moment on the eternal continuum that is held in he who is the beginning and the end. In fact, in him there is no end. That's the whole point. Think about those early Christians. The Roman Empire had risen up so much and was so narcissistic in its desire for power that it was seeking to crush and to stamp out the Christian church, which is actually something that our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world in some other countries actually still experience today. This attempt to be stamped out. Because again, by the end of the first century, when this letter was written, persecution was at an all-time high. And that's still the case. Rome was the all-conquering power of the world. What chance could the church possibly have against it? They were being faced with death on a regular basis. It would have seemed utterly hopeless, something we can't even imagine. But as John found out, as John was reminded, their hearts and their minds had left out the most important factor. If the God of heaven has installed on his throne this kind of a king that we've just spoken about, a king who loves us and who has freed us and who has died and been resurrected for us, a king who is in every way the beginning and the end of everything, then nothing can actually take us from him. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand, right? We sing that, but do we realize what we're saying? Nothing, not even death, can take us from him. He doesn't leave us or abandon us ever, at any moment. We have this strange tendency, and here we're going to get a little vulnerable, okay? We have this strange tendency to think that it's only people who are past a certain age 
that need to think about and prepare for what we in our human lives call the end. But that is such a terrible mistake and a poor rendering of what our faith is about. Don't get me wrong, I, I don't enjoy talking about death. It's not my favorite thing in the world. And maybe the, the experiences of my own family over the last few years have made me think about it a bit more. I mean, I certainly wonder a lot. Um, how would I handle my own suffering? How would I handle it if someone I love deeply suddenly passes away? How would I handle saying goodbye to somebody in that fashion? It's a kind of grief that we really actually can't prepare ourselves for because it's too exhausting to rehearse it ahead of time. There's, there's far too many emotions involved. But that doesn't mean that we don't regularly train ourselves, every single one of us, to lay the very concept of breathing into the hands of he who is our Alpha and Omega. In him, we don't have a beginning and an end. That's the whole point. We are held, our entire existence in hell is held in him because he holds it all. We don't even exist in those categories. On a human level, we do, sure. But remember, there's always something more going on than what we can see, which sounds insane and completely irrational, but it's true. It's true. And it's what Jesus was revealing to John on that little island of Patmos 2,000 years ago. He holds it all. That's why Paul told the Thessalonians not to grieve as those who have no hope. Because it's just not the reality that we live in. We grieve, of course we do. But we grieve with hope with wonder, with perhaps even a sort of rejoicing, knowing that there's always more going on than what we can see. If that kind of an imagination does not inundate our faith in the way we live our lives, then I'm not sure we've really accepted and embraced who Jesus is. A good friend of mine who is currently in a season of deep suffering actually reminded me this past week of a passage in Philippians where Paul says, rejoice always. Now, Paul didn't say that to mean that we don't grieve. That's not the point. Or that we can't grieve and rejoice simultaneously. Human beings are far too complex to have such tight categories as if you can only grieve here and you can only rejoice here. Most of the time, actually, these, these things actually are intertwined. They work hand in hand. Sometimes they even enable the other. Many of you are perhaps familiar with the name Tim Keller. He was a, a famous preacher, pastor in New York um, for the last, last number of decades. He passed away last year because in 2020 he had been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And he ended up writing an article about... Um, his experience of contemplating the end. He wrote an, an article in The Atlantic. Death and belief about God in the afterlife, he said, are often abstract concepts. Again, things that we kind of keep away from us. Things we don't really accept on a heart level. 
But he realized after being diagnosed that his beliefs would now have to become as real to him in his heart as they were in his mind. They had to become life-gripping truths. He wrote, It is one thing to believe with certainty that honey is sweet, but it is another to actually taste the sweetness of honey. Eventually, he wrote, Jesus' costly love, death, and resurrection became not just things that he believed and, and filed away, but became the source of his daily happiness. Grief and rejoicing, in other words, were intertwined. Of course, there were days that were super hard and tearful. He and his wife would just grieve together. But also at that time, the simplest pleasures in this world became sources of great happiness. Heaven and earth were, were piecing together in the presence of Christ, who was drawing nearer and nearer to him in his suffering. Jesus said to his disciples, in this world we will have hardship. It's a reality. It's going to happen. And it's only natural for us in the midst of our suffering and pain and our journeys toward healing to ask, as John did, why? Or as John would have done, why, where is this all going? Why is this happening to me right now? But that angst has an explanation. That angst points us to Christ. Do we grieve? Yes. But our grief is not directionless. It finds a place to rest in the hands of the one who is and who was and who is to come. He who is our Alpha and our Omega, our beginning and our end. Everything we experience is held in his loving hands. Let's pray. Living God, as we've just now engaged with some of the words of your scriptures, Lord, knowing that this is a living word, we ask, Lord, that you would be alive and at work within our own souls and hearts and minds. Lord, we want these truths to become life-gripping truths that actually impact the way that we live and the way that we witness to you, to what you've done, to how you've loved us and freed us and called us your own. Lord, it is our prayer this morning that by your Holy Spirit, you would allow these truths to sink in, to sink in deeply, that we would acknowledge you on a daily basis as the one who holds all things together, that we would recognize that our lives are not our own because they are actually so much bigger than what we can see. Enable us Lord, to have this feeling of being held in your hands this morning and inspire us, Lord, to go and to witness to the good works that you have done, but above all, Lord, to who you are. We pray this in your powerful name, Jesus. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.